a little bit over five years ago, sometime in 2017, I think it was, I was hanging out in a rooftop bar with a bunch of new friends. This is one of the many moments in my 30s when I was trying out a whole new me. I was doing a whole new thing. And I had new friends. And they were theatre people, comedians, performers. And everyone was at least five years younger than me. And I was highly conscious of this fact and I kept bringing it up even though no one around me really cared and was sort of bored by my constantly bringing it up, I was having a really great time. I was having too great a time. I was making this show. I had been making this show for about a year and I was possibly very occasionally writing the odd draft of a poem or reading a couple of pages of something. But I think The reality of that time was that I was trying to get away from poetry and I had succeeded. I was pretty far away from the reading, the writing, going to readings, knowing what was going on and I wasn't really missing it very much. So I'm at the rooftop bar. I'm almost certainly wearing my ill-advised leather jacket and I was talking to this guy who was a performer. I really looked up to him. I was trying to learn from him. He was my teacher at the time. And as sometimes happens when people around you know that you are a poet, he started asking me about that and doing the whole, so you're a poet, what's that like? And I probably said something like, oh, I suppose I am sometimes, which is my usual answer. It's weird being asked about Writing poetry sometimes can feel like being reminded of all the work you have to do tomorrow when you are really just trying to enjoy a night out. I really didn't want to be thinking about it in that moment. But then he followed up with this question. He said, well, what are you doing here with us? Why are you interested in all this? All this all this comedy stuff, this performance stuff. And I said to him, because of course I wasn't dramatic at all, I said, well, this hasn't broken my heart yet. And what he said to me was sort of shocking and not what I wanted to hear. He kind of took the place of Yoda when Yoda says to Luke, When Luke says to him, I'm not afraid, and Yoda says, you will be. And this guy, my teacher, who I looked up to, who I really admired, uh, told me, oh, if it hasn't broken your heart yet, it will. It will. Fresh Air by Kenneth Koch. At the Poem Society, a black-haired man stands up to say, You make me sick with all your talk about restraint and mature talent. Haven't you ever looked out the window at a painting by Matisse? Or did you always stay in hotels where there were too many spiders crawling on your visages? Did you ever glance inside a bottle of sparkling pop or see a citizen split in two by the lightning? 
I am afraid you have never smiled at the hibernation of bear cubs, except that you saw it in some deep relation to human suffering and wishes. Oh, what a bunch of crackpots. The black-haired man sits down and the others shoot arrows at him. A blonde man stands up and says, he is right. Why should we be organized to defend the kingdom of dullness? There are so many slimy people connected with poetry too, and people who know nothing about it. I am not recommending that poets like each other and organize to fight them, but simply that lightning should strike them. And rooftop bar Yoda was, of course, entirely right. Fast forward a few years, my life was consumed. And I mean, eaten, chewed up, swallowed, spat out by all that stuff. I was producing a show every week. I was performing somewhere between three to five nights a week. My whole life really was about performing in every sense of the word. I was running training groups. I was catching up with people to talk about show ideas. I was exhausted. And I was still five years older than everyone, but by now I was getting into my later 30s and I was finding it harder and harder to keep up with the late nights and the drinking and the endless, ever-expanding diagram of who was sleeping with who and had slept with whom. I was really sick. And I was really sad. And I was, honestly, I was fucking crazy. I was spinning plates in just about every area of my life at that point, And I didn't even really remember why I was spinning them. I had this particular low point at the Melbourne Fringe in late 2019. When you're involved with the comedy scene in Melbourne, which is hectic, it's intense. There's a lot of very talented people here and they all, you know, like we're, we know it can be done. Hannah Gatsby just put together a show for the Brooklyn Museum. I mean, it got absolutely panned but we know <laughs> there is an escape path through comedy and people are hungry here they're super fucking hungry so yeah when you're involved in in that scene more often than not you will end up with a pass and if you have a pass you can see any show in the festival the fringe or the comedy festival for free. You just walk in. So in late 2019, I don't remember how I got my pass, but I probably saw, I probably saw 20 shows in something like a week and a half, which was pretty normal. This is what everyone was doing. Felt like a completely normal way to approach things. But I remember taking a minute to drop into Brunswick Street Books and I found a copy of this Ashbury biography called The Songs We Know Best. And I started reading it and I loved it. And I thought, I really need to read this. This would be great um, to talk about on the show. And 
yeah, I, I found myself a spot at a bar and I, I read probably, I mean, look, if I'm honest, probably the first page and a half and then realized that I had to go because I had to get to the next show and I left the book behind and I hated the show and uh, when I got there I realized oh I don't have that book oh damn okay I guess I left it in the bar got through the show got through the after show chats and rode my bike home up St George's Road to Preston probably freezing probably a bit too drunk probably listening to The National and I never I have never found that book again I still haven't read the songs we know best. I can totally see how that story sounds like nothing. (laughs) Like, what do you mean? You left your book behind? Can't you just order the book on Amazon? I think what I'm trying to say with that is that that was a moment when I realised how far off course I was. And how the thing that I thought I loved and was making me really happy, I realized around that time was starting to make me pretty seriously miserable. I still have really dear friends who I hung out with from around that time and silent co-producer Kay is one of them. But for obvious and not so obvious reasons, all the performance stuff is a million miles away now. When I was doing it, I know that it used to creep into what I was doing here and I used to mention it a lot. I don't talk about it so much anymore, partly because it feels irrelevant, partly because I don't really know how, but it was a huge part of my life. And and I'm bringing it up today because lately I've been thinking back to that conversation with Rooftop Yoda and thinking about how dishonest that moment was. Essentially what I was saying was poetry has broken my heart and I don't know what I was referring to. I don't think I really knew then when I said it. I suspect that I was just trying to sound impressive because poets are melancholy and and their lives are sad <laughs> like I was some kind of cross between Sylvia Plath and and uh, Berryman or something but I was nowhere near the heartbreak at that point I was doing just fine I'm not recommending that poets like each other and organize to fight them but simply that lightning should strike them Then the assembled mediocrities shot arrows at the blonde-haired man. The chairman stood up on the platform. Oh, he was physically ugly. He was small-limbed and boned and thought he was quite seductive, but he was bald with certain hideous black hairs and his voice had the sound of water leaving a Vaseline bathtub. And he said, the subject for this evening's discussion is poetry on the subject of love between swans and everyone threw candy hearts at the disgusting man, and they stuck to his bib and tucker. And he glanced up and down on the platform in terrific glee and recited the poetry of his little friends. 
I got to meet the poet Ken Bolton the other week. He is just exactly as wonderful as his poems suggest he is. I loved meeting him. I loved our conversation and I can't wait to share it with you. While we were talking, uh, after we did the interview, he made me lunch and we had a chat and he mentioned a poem that I'd never read before. In fact, most of the poems that he mentioned I had never read before. One of them was this poem, Fresh Air, by Kenneth Koch. And the next day after the interview, I started reading it over breakfast and I haven't read enough Kenneth Koch. I never really see him in bookshops around here. But every time I do, I get this jolt of recognition. I'm like, oh, you, there, there you are. I've been looking for you. So what the hell was I on about? with the heartbreak thing. If I go back to the beginning, when I first started reading and writing poetry, I can remember how much felt possible. I had that copy of The Best Australian 2007 by the bed, the one that I spilled water all over. And, you know, I was pretty sure I was going to be in the Best Australian 2008. I mean, I'd only just started, but I I had a feeling. And I did have a really good run at the beginning, more seriously. I can see now that part of that was that there were an unusually high number at that time of small magazines, little websites, and... Even more unusually, those magazines and websites had money. So not only were there lots of publication opportunities for beginner poets like myself, there were ways to get paid. So I had this feeling that I was killing it at the start. I had this rule where the poetry money, any money that came from poetry, was only allowed to be spent on taking my friends out. For dinner and there was this run of a couple of months in probably about 2008 where I was taking them out every other month. I was very definitely on my way. None of those magazines exist anymore. I haven't submitted anything for so long. I can't even really complain about not being accepted. But it's it's not that, and it's not the rejection stuff. That's not what I was talking about when I was trying to make my case that my heart was broken, because that's all part of it, right? That's the work. You want the rejection slips. You want to decorate the wall with the rejection slips. That's the good stuff. While I was in Adelaide, I also got to meet Aidan Coleman, who was part of my episode on John Forbes and who's putting together Forbes' biography. And I asked Aidan about that line that we attribute to Forbes, that thing about the knife fight in the phone booth. A disagreement between poets is like a knife fight in a phone booth. If Forbes said this, he was talking really specifically about 
the poetry wars of the 1970s, which honestly I'm still not sure I completely understand. But I had heard this phrase in a couple of different contexts over the years and had sort of expanded the statement to cover all disagreements between poets anywhere. That idea that everyone gets hurt when we fight felt so perfect to me. It felt so true. And I've thought about it a lot. I've thought about it from lots of different angles. Because it does feel true, but does it also mean that we should never disagree? Does it mean that we have to band together? Does it actually work as a sort of shutting down of critical conversations that need to be had? Or is it just the most simple explanation? Is it just that Forbes said it just about that specific conflict? Which again, I feel like I need a bit more help to fully get my head around. I guess I could have been referring to that when I was talking about heartbreak, but the big knife fights hadn't even happened yet in my little timeline. They were still to come. Any any knife fights that I knew about, I only knew about third hand and they were historical. For whatever it's worth at this point in the episode, this is not an extended subtweet about some specific disagreement or specific heartbreak. You can believe me when I say that or not, but 99% of the time I only learn about whatever's going on, whatever disagreement is going on in poetry months after the fact. I intentionally avoid knowing about this stuff because I obsess over it, I worry about it, I lose sleep, and it's not something that I am really built to handle. So I don't know who's mad at who or why they're mad. That's, that's not what I'm talking about here. So look, who knows what I was referring to that night on the rooftop. The most likely answer is I was just trying to sound impressive to someone who impressed me. And he glanced up and down on the platform in terrific glee and recited the poetry of his little friends. But the blonde man stuck his head out of a cloud and recited poems about the east and thunder, and the black-haired man moved through the stratosphere, chanting poems of the relationships between terrific prehistoric charcoal whales. And the slimy man, with candy hearts sticking all over him, wilted away, like a cigarette paper on which the bumblebees have urinated. And all the professors left the room to go back to their duty, and all that were left in the room were five or six poets, and together they sang the new poem of the 20th century. But if I were trying to make it make sense, if I were to have that conversation today, knowing what I know a number of years later, not that many years later, but a couple of years later, having a, a few more experiences under my belt, and having had a whole bunch of conversations through this show and around this show, I think I could kind of explain it. There are a lot of different kinds of heartbreak. A teacher of mine referred to this as ordinary heartbreak. Things that just come along with living. I mean, these things probably aren't even specific to poetry. 
they're so ordinary they probably exist in any kind of creative endeavor things like what you thought would happen after your first publication versus what actually happened and same goes for your first reading or your first book and how you thought that might feel versus what it actually felt like maybe those are minor things negligible things not worth mentioning but they made me think of the heartbreak of outliving your own reputation realizing that the peak has actually passed realizing that the things you were chasing didn't actually amount to very much not to mention the various types of straight up bullshit that you encounter everybody would have a story in this category story about being unfairly criticized pigeonholed stereotyped dismissed misunderstood left out this happens everywhere so why wouldn't it happen in poetry there is also something close to actual heartbreak here because poetry is about relationships I read this passage in a review of a book called Rhymes Rooms by a guy called Brad Lighthouser. The reviewer quoted a section from the book which honestly sort of chilled me. So the writer Brad Lighthouser says, The bartering between poet and reader is less like something taking place at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange than what goes on in a weekend singles bar. Money isn't the chief mode or object of commerce. It's affection, a hunger for love, or something approximating love. Everybody would probably have a story in that category as well. So I was out with my girlfriends a couple of nights ago. These particular ladies have nothing to do with poetry. We used to work together. I had four standard drinks, and because I am 40 years old, I am still recovering. It is Monday. They're both younger than me, like most of my friends. It's one of the things about not having kids is your friends seem to get younger because the friends who are your age are very busy. (laughs) So one of these friends of mine is married, and one is getting married soon. And toward the end of the night, we started talking about the length of our respective relationships, which is always a weird moment for me, because I've been with my partner since I was barely 20. And they were joking about how when they finally get to 10 years in, they're going to come to me and say, is this what it's supposed to be like? It's weird, because I feel that I should have some wise and useful thing to say but of course you can never say what a relationship is supposed to be like every relationship is a completely different beast anything that i said would only be applicable to me one thing i think that you do need though in a long relationship is faith you need faith in the other person But more than that, much more than that, you need faith in yourself. Because there will be heartbreak. 
you will break each other's hearts. You will almost certainly not mean to. You may not even notice that you've done it. But if you are going to stick with something for a long time, you have to accept that heartbreak is part of the deal and probably just means that you are alive. I know that uh, I've been referencing the National too often recently and I know that they're not perfect lyricists, but they do have this song, Terrible Love, and there's a line in it. They say, it takes an ocean not to break. You do need faith. Because you will come out the other side. And it will get sweet again. And all that were left in the room were five or six poets. And together they sang the new poem of the 20th century. Which, though influenced by Mallarmé, Shelley, Byron and Whitman, plus a million other poets, is still entirely original and is so exciting that it cannot be here repeated. You must go to the Poem Society and wait for it to happen. Once you have heard this poem, you will not love any other. Once you have dreamed this dream, you will be inconsolable. Once you have loved this dream, you will be as one dead. Once you have visited the passages of this time's great art. One of the things that's been giving me the most faith recently is looking at stories of women who are quite a bit older than me and looking at how they did it. I hope, I really hope that doesn't sound like patronizing or something. It's just this thing that I've noticed since I've turned 40 that I, I really am just so hungry for relationships with women who've, who've done it, who've been there. And I've been reading a fuck ton of Helen Garner, <laughs> which, which has been really great. I've just, I'm about halfway through True Stories, which is her full nonfiction essay collection. And she wrote this essay called On Turning 50. I think it got her into quite a bit of trouble at the time. I'm not really sure why reading it now, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think people liked it for some reason. It's one of the ones in the collection that really stood out to me, and I want to end with a little passage from it. So this is from On Turning 50. Perhaps we come of age rather late in Australia, or in my generation. But I never expected to find, in my 50s, this marvellous freedom. Women may be late starters as artists, but perhaps a strength that develops late lasts longer. When once you rushed at things like a bull at a gate, now you know how to be patient. Things still hurt, but you are stronger. At 50, you are developing a steady nerve. You can discriminate. You can stop worrying about exteriors and start to look inward for meaning. At 50, the age when you thought you would be on the scrap heap, you find you are just entering your prime. <laughs>